In another Peanuts comic strip, cartoonist Charles Schultz depicted this antagonistic character, Lucy, just tearing into Charlie Brown, as she often did. She got into his face and announced to him, Charlie Brown, you are a foul ball in the line drive of life. You're in the shadow of your own goalpost. You are a miscue. You are three putts on the 18th green. You are a 7 split in the 10th frame and a love set. You have dropped a rod and reel in the lake of life. You are a missed free throw, a shank nine iron, and a called third strike. Do you understand me, Charlie Brown? Have I made myself clear? She, uh, she was a sweetheart. Um, not unlike Charlie Brown, Nehemiah had, has two Lucy-like characters on his case. One of them is Sam Ballad, and then his associate is Tobiah. The situation is that Nehemiah had just arrived at Jerusalem around 445 B.C. He and his construction crews were there to rebuild the protective wall around Jerusalem since it had earlier been torn to pieces and then burned to the ground. Nehemiah was anxious and determined to rebuild that wall and those gates that were part of that wall so that there could be serious fortification and protection for Jerusalem's inhabitants. This message is the second part of a two-part lesson on Nehemiah and the subject of critics and criticism. Criticism reminds me that this afternoon is in some sense historic. Uh, Sarah Thomas will become the first female to actually referee a Super Bowl. And the consensus is that she will do a fantastic job because women are really good at pointing out what men do wrong. <laughs> it's, a, it's a joke, ladies. It's a, it's a joke. Okay. Remember, criticism comes in two basic forms. There is constructive criticism intended to benefit someone. And then there's destructive criticism, and that criticism is intended to cause harm in some sense to someone. Nehemiah has received non-stop destructive criticism. In part one, we mentioned that these antagonists, Sambalad and Tobiah, were both angered at Nehemiah and his intention to rebuild Jerusalem. It seems that this reconstruction project threatened Sambalad and Tobiah's economic futures. The concern was that if Nehemiah moved in and rebuilt Jerusalem, and then Jerusalem was re-inhabited, then those men could get squeezed out of the picture. That meant that those two men wanted to stop that construction project. And as part of that attempt to shut it down, Sambalad and Tobiah started to criticize Nehemiah. That criticism then turned into ridiculing him, mocking him. In verse 3, Tobiah insinuated that this wall those men were building out of stone and lumber was so unstable that if a fox were to jump on top of it, that it would completely collapse and fall to the ground. So these men were resorting to all sorts of ridiculous, illogical, foolish accusations in order to discourage Nehemiah and his men from rebuilding Jerusalem. Now, notice Nehemiah has a two-part reaction to those critics and to that criticism. Part one is Nehemiah prayed. Nehemiah prayed. His first reaction 
to that criticism was to pray. That's always a good first reaction. Praying should be our first thought and not an afterthought. So Nehemiah faced his critics on his knees. I am convinced that the most aggressive posture against personal opposition is the kneeling position. Satan shudders if he sees someone on his knees. So Nehemiah talked to God about his antagonist. But I want us to notice something. I want us to see the unusual nature of this prayer Nehemiah prayed. Verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we, we meaning Nehemiah and his men that were reconstructing this wall, for we are despised. Turn their reproach, meaning disapproval, turn their reproach on their own heads. Nehemiah wanted God to cause this destructive criticism from these men to be counterproductive and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. This was some serious hardcore praying. Nehemiah actually asked God for Sambalad and Tobiah to be taken captive. He prayed these men would be taken captive into a foreign land just as the Jewish people were earlier taken captive into ancient Babylon. Nehemiah's prayer continues, verse 5, Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. Why? For they have provoked you, God, to anger before the builders. Nehemiah said that in frustrating him and in frustrating his construction crews, Sambalad and Tobiah were also infuriating God. These men had angered God through all this criticism. So notice that Nehemiah actually said for God not to forgive them. He said, do not cover their iniquity, and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. Nehemiah specifically said for God not to forgive those sins that Sanballat and Tobiah had committed against him and his people. That prayer was most unusual, because that prayer seems to be diametrically opposed to the instructions on prayer found in the New Testament. If someone offends us now, and sins against us, now, and is critical of us from an impure motive. Now, during this age, then we are instructed to pray for that person and beg God to forgive them. Let me cite two biblical examples of that. One, Jesus prayed for those that opposed him. As Jesus was being crucified, he actually spoke from the cross. And seven things he said are recorded in Scripture. He could have said more than that. But seven things he said were recorded. One of those seven times Jesus spoke, he spoke about his executioners, and he actually asked God to forgive them. Luke 23, verse 34, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Them, meaning his executioners, those men that nailed him to that cross. Why? Did he ask for them to be forgiven? For they do not know what they do. That phrase, for they do not know what they do, means that those executioners did as commanded, did as executioners were expected to do, and that was to put a victim to death. Those men did not understand the full implications of their murderous actions. These men acted in absolute ignorance. And that's the reason Jesus was asking for them to be forgiven. Second, Stephen prayed 
for those that opposed him. Stephen has the unique distinction of being the first Christian to be martyred in the history of the church. In Acts 7, he preached this incredible convicting sermon in front of Israel's highest court called the Sanhedrin. And that sermon so infuriated these men, he indicted them for the death of Jesus, that those men interrupted his sermon, accosted him, dragged him outside Jerusalem, and then stoned him to death. Acts 7, verse 60, notice Stephen's actions. As he was being stoned, as he died, then he, Stephen, knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. That sin was murder. Because the Sanhedrin impulsively put to death an innocent man. In his final breaths, Stephen prayed, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Meaning he begged God not to hold these men accountable, not to hold these men responsible for committing that violent act. That is now the biblical pattern. Scripture teaches that as a Christian, we are to petition God to forgive those persons that have tried to harm us through destructive criticism. But that, notice, that is not what Nehemiah did. According to verse 5, Nehemiah said about his critics, Don't forgive them, God. God, don't do it. Don't forgive these men. On the surface, Nehemiah's prayer sounds as though it was insensitive and even unbiblical. It actually wasn't. To the contrary, I believe Nehemiah prayed a thoroughly biblical prayer. Now, don't miss this. God had earlier said Jerusalem belonged to the ancient Jewish people, and he had pronounced judgment on Israel's enemies that dared infringe on the well-being of Jerusalem and its inhabitants. That means that in his praying that God would curse Sanballat and Tobiah, in essence, all Nehemiah did was to ask God to fulfill what he had already prophesied he would do to Israel's enemies. That was a legitimate petition. Because in that particular situation, Nehemiah was praying according to what God had earlier said he would do. Beginning in chapter in Genesis 12, at the Abrahamic covenant, God had pronounced judgment on those persons and nations that harassed his covenant people. And so in asking God not to forgive these men and wishing for them to be held as actual captives and slaves in some foreign land, Nehemiah was essentially asking God to do what he had earlier said he would do. That sort of praying is the imprecatory praying we discussed in our Daniel series. For those of us that were here, we spent a sizable portion of a sermon on imprecatory praying. Notice the definition, to imprecate means to invoke a curse or evil on someone's enemies. So imprecatory praying means praying that God, God would invoke a curse, misfortune, or damnation onto someone and or someone's. Some of the Psalms are considered imprecatory Psalms. Because in those Psalms, David prayed down judgment on his enemies. And not so much to get revenge on them, but to demonstrate that God is a just God and He hates evilness. Most per people uh, have heard about Whoopi Goldberg's recent foolishness on The View. Ms. Goldberg's real name is Karen Elaine Johnson. 
I'm not sure where Whoopi Goldberg came from. That is a stage name. She is one of five co-hosts on a television program called The View. I do not watch The View. I cannot recommend The View. The View isn't a good view. Um, the View re resembles NASCAR drivers. It only turns left. Just turns left. That's all. <laughs> In a recent uh, program, Ms. Goldberg made the unbelievable and ignorant comment, quote, she said, the Holocaust wasn't about race. The Holocaust wasn't about race. An incredible anti-Semitic statement. Now, being gracious, as you know, I'm a very gracious person, um, giving Ms. Goldberg the benefit of the doubt, those comments probably weren't ill-intended, she probably wasn't malicious, but those statements revealed that she couldn't be more uninformed and misinformed about the worst of humanity. It seems she just didn't know better. But I don't know how she couldn't know better. Understand something. The Holocaust was all about race and all about racism. It was about creating the so-called master race and eliminating all people considered subhuman. The Holocaust was about the Nazis' systematic annihilation of the Jewish people, more than six million of them. In addition to the mass extermination of other people groups, the Nazis also perceived to be racially inferior to themselves. People, the Holocaust was the ultimate hate crime and ultimate racial racist act. Whoopi Goldberg received a huge pushback for her comments, as she should have, so she was forced to apologize on air multiple times. She was required to take a two-week sabbatical from The View. It's interesting, though, cancel culture didn't demand she resign, something it would have done if she had been a conservative. I'm hoping she will use some of that time off to educate herself. There are 16 Holocaust museums in the United States and I understand she has been invited to tour one of them. I hope she does. I once had the unique privilege of meeting a man named Edgar Kasha. Edgar Kasha. He passed in 2017. He was a Jewish man from Czechoslovakia. He is, was also an escapee from Auschwitz. Escapee from Auschwitz. He suffered so much in that concentration camp, he weighed just 70 pounds. His escape was miraculous. I have zero tolerance for Holocaust deniers. I sat for 10 minutes and spoke to this man and heard his story and people, the Holocaust happened. It is undeniable. The reason I mention the Holocaust is because the Holocaust is a modern example where imprecatory praying would have been appropriate. I am convinced German Christians under Nazism during the Second World War had biblical permission to pray down divine damnation on the Third Reich. Those Christians had biblical permission to beg God to bless the Allied forces and stop Hitler's war machine. That's imprecatory praying. I've mentioned Diedrich Bonhoeffer often before. He was a famous German theologian, pastor, author, 
and an aggressive anti-Nazi dissident. Uh, he is quoted often. He was outspoken against Hitler's euthanasia program and the genocidal persecution of the Jewish people. The German Gestapo arrested him in spring 1943, imprisoned him for some 18 months, and then sent him to a consecration, concentration camp where he was hanged to death. He was hung just before the war ended. The charge brought against him, resulting in his execution, was his connection, his personal connection, to those conspirators that plotted to assassinate Hitler. Understand, Bonhoeffer was sympathetic to that assassination plot, and he prayed for the success of that assassination attempt. That's imprecatory praying. I believe as Christians we can, in good conscience, still pray a curse, misfortune, and catastrophic consequences on certain evilness, on movements such as ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, and the Taliban, and on certain evil rulers such as Kim Jong-un from North Korea. It is common knowledge the North Korean people are starving. Kim Jong-un is worth $5 billion. We can pray down judgment on President Nicolas Maduro from Venezuela and Russia's Vladimir Putin, a butcher himself. We can pray down divine judgment on certain godless administrations, regimes and governments such as the totalitarian Chinese communist government. Chinese communist China is determined to be the ultimate global superpower and we have been fools to accommodate them. China has never suffered consequences from creating and then covering up the dreaded coronavirus. The IOC, International Olympic Committee, had no business scheduling the 2022 Winter Olympics there. And our nation had no business sending our athletes there. We should have boycotted them. I, for one, have boycotted all program from the Olympics. I have no clue what's happening, and I don't care. So there are some isolated situations where imprecatory praying is acceptable. And Nehemiah's imprecatory praying was acceptable. But Nehemiah's situation is not now the norm. Then what is the norm? How do we react to personal critics and opposition against us? In his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus commented on our personal reaction to critics that have a negative and destructive motivation for their hurtful comments against us. Matthew 5, 43 and 44. These statements, notice, are addressed to individuals and not nations. So this is not from a manual on international relations. Verse 43, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies. I still remember the bumper sticker, Love your enemies. It confuses them. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. To bless someone means to want someone to receive goodness and favor. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Notice the words we bolded in that verse. Love, bless, do good, and pray. This statement from Jesus means that if we have attracted a critic, someone that is unfair 
and unreasonable and critical of us from a less than honorable motive. If that has happened, then we are to love that person, bless that person, do good to that person, and pray for that person. Remember, Nehemiah's situation was unique. So most often, we are not to pray as Nehemiah prayed. Most often. We should probably save imprecatory praying for the worst of the worst. Notice, though, Nehemiah asked God to fight against his critics, but we are to ask God to forgive our critics. If someone criticizes us and that criticism is destructive, intending to cause us some sense of harm, then we should pray for them. One reason we should pray for them is that prayer changes people. People can change. No one is past change. A good man, a good, good man from our first congregation shared with me some constructive criticism. His problem was my age. As I became his pastor at age 24 and a half, and that was a legitimate concern. No one in his right mind should attempt to a pastor a congregation at 24 and a half. And I said to him, I understand the concern. I do, I do. I've been told this. But if you can do me a favor, if you can just be patient, and if you can pray for me, uh, please know I, I am planning on getting older. <laughs> he made a commitment to pray for me, and he did exercise patience. And over time, I did get older, and I matured some. He became a close, close friend and one of my strongest supporters. Because people can change. Notice the principle, if we're criticized, don't take it out on people. Instead, talk it out with God. If we're criticized, don't take it out on people. Instead, talk it out with God. Proverbs 24, verse 6. Do not answer a fool according to his folly. Folly is foolishness. Do not answer a fool according to his foolishness. It seems obvious to us that both Sambalad and Tobiah were foolish critics. Solomon said, do not answer a fool. Just ignore him. Some people don't deserve a response. And in compliance to those instructions, Nehemiah didn't answer those critical accusations that had been brought against him. Instead, he spoke to God about those men. Once again, the principle is that if you are criticized, don't take it out on the people Instead, talk it out with God, and that is exactly what Nehemiah did, and that is what we should do. Pray for our critics and ask God that he might forgive them of any unjust, unfair, unreasonable, illogical criticism, and that he would change them. But that's not all Nehemiah did. There's a second part to his reaction. Nehemiah prayed, yes, and then Nehemiah persisted. Nehemiah persisted. Verse 6, So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. That means at that time that um, Nehemiah said this, the reconstructed wall was completed all around Jerusalem up to half its original height, meaning the project was half finished. 
And then notice, the construction uh, has been going up. Why? Notice, verse 6, for the people had a mind to work. For the people had a mind to work. That last phrase describes a pastor's dream congregation. The people, the inference is all the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah had convinced all the people to be all in on this project. Nehemiah had succeeded in convincing the people to become participants and not just spectators. Something I still struggle to do. Nehemiah was persistent. Nehemiah wasn't going to let those critical men stop him. Instead, he continued to encourage his people to rebuild Jerusalem. Nehemiah persisted. Nehemiah prayed. Yes, he prayed. And then Nehemiah persisted. He was tenacious. He was determined. I might interject a footnote. Don't confuse persistence and procrastination. Don't confuse them. Leonardo da Vinci is a familiar name. He was an extremely famous artist. He is remembered for his paintings of The Last Supper. That is a classic. And his painting, The Mona Lisa, another classic. But altogether, just 17 of his paintings have survived to the present. And some of them are unfinished. That's because of his chronic procrastination. The Mona Lisa took him 15 years to complete. His painting called The Virgin of the Rocks was commissioned to him, holding him to a seven-month deadline. Instead of seven months, it took him 25 years to complete. He was such a procrastinator that on his bed, Da Vinci apologized to both God and man for, quote, leaving so much undone. It is true he was persistent in those cases because he did actually finish those paintings, but he pr procrastinated as much as he persisted. So there's a difference. Let's demonstrate just how persistent Nehemiah was in completing this project. His opposition intensified, starting in verse 7. Now it happened when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Asdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps, meaning the gaps in the wall, were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. So these men in these groups understood that construction was happening, the project was going on, and they were upset. Verse 8, And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem, and create confusion. Notice that Sanballat and Tobiah, who had been critical of Nehemiah and his construction crews, stopped criticizing. Stopped criticizing and started conspiring together with foreign armies to come against Jerusalem and then through the use of military force literally put a stop to that construction. Those groups were planning to vandalize the project, meaning to go in and tear down all the existing construction. All that Nehemiah's crews had rebuilt, these groups wanted to dismantle. So what did Nehemiah do about that? Verse 9, Nevertheless, meaning in spite of that conspiratorial opposition, we, notice Nehemiah said, we made our prayer to our God. It's interesting that it is no longer just Nehemiah 
that prayed, but all the people were praying. The statement is made, nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. It is a fact. People do what people see someone else do. And Nehemiah's consistent praying motivated people to join him in talking to God about the situation. That is important because corporate opposition requires a corporate response. Verse 9 continues, And because of them, meaning because of Jerusalem's enemies, Sembala, Tobiah, and these different groups, from other lands. We set a watch against them day and night. Nehemiah then implemented a human alarm system. He set men that had armed themselves uh, to guard this project on a rotating 24-hour basis. He stationed an armed guard around this wall 24-7. Nehemiah persisted. As important as prayer is, and I don't ever want to minimize praying, As important as prayer is, though, prayer in and of itself is almost never enough. We must pray. But at the same time, we are also to persist in doing what we are expected to do. Example, if we're unemployed and we need employment, we should pray for a job. We should pray consistently, begging God for a job. But... We shouldn't stop at praying. We should also be online searching for job openings and filling out applications and sending in resumes and going on interviews. Why? Because God will not do for us what He expects us to do for ourselves. The most successful predecessor to evangelist Billy Graham was evangelist Dwight Lyman Moody. His last crusade was held in Kansas City. He died in 1899. Famous man. Moody Bible Institute. um, Moody Publishing. On and on. I understand that D.L. Moody was coming across the Atlantic Ocean on a large passenger ship. A fire broke out on that ship. And it was a threat to the ship and its passengers. One of Moody's associates heard about that fire and said, D.L., D.L., let's go pray. Moody responded, no, no, we'll pray as we stand here and pass the water buckets. That's praying and persisting. Nehemiah talked to God, yes, and then he remained at his task. He prayed and prayed and prayed and he persisted. Nehemiah put feet on his prayers. Sanballat and his associates had criticized him and his crews and had tried to demoralize them. But Nehemiah stepped in and said, men, don't mind them. Just keep on mixing mortar, and someone hand me another brick. Come on, guys, we've got to put this wall together. Nehemiah persisted, and remember that persistence is essential to success. I heard about a father that was having a conversation with his teenage son. He said, son, you need to set a goal. Set a goal, and then never, never quit until you reach that goal. Son, do you remember Benjamin Franklin? His son seemed surprised at that question. He said, sure, Dad, I remember him. Do you remember Thomas Edison? Sure, I remember him. Do you remember Henry Ford? Yes, yes. Do you remember Albert Einstein? Yes, I remember him. Son, do you understand what each of those men had in common? 
No, Dad, I don't. What, what was it? They didn't quit. They didn't quit. His father said, Son, do you remember Bernard MacDonald? His son responded, Bernard MacDonald? No, I don't remember him. I don't remember that name. His dad said, See, you don't remember him because he quit. <laughs> it is true. Those that quit and those that don't persist aren't remembered. And the reason those people aren't remembered is because those people don't stand out from the rest of the populace because like them, most people quit. This verse deserves to be memorized. Galatians 6 verse 9. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. In paraphrase form, this verse reads, don't get tired of doing good. Now, doing good requires energy and focus and hours sometimes and determination. So there is a certain degree of fatigue that accompanies doing good. That's not what is referred to here. This means don't get tired of doing good to the point of quitting. Yes, you're going to get exhausted, you're going to get tired, but not to the point of quitting. And then Paul used an agricultural comparison of a farmer sowing some seed in his field and after some time reaping a harvest. He said, don't get tired of doing good because at just the right time we will reap a harvest, meaning we will be blessed if we refuse to give up. Someone said, people are sometimes unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered forgive them anyway if you're kind some people will accuse you of selfish and ulterior motives be kind anyway if you're successful you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies succeed anyway if you're honest and sincere some people will deceive and cheat you be honest and sincere anyway if you find happiness some people will be envious find happiness anyway the good you today will often be forgotten tomorrow do good anyway give the best you have and it might never be enough give your best anyway in the final analysis it is between you and God it was never between you and them anyway Galatians 6 verse 9 the essence of that statement is that we are to do good and do good and do good and don't stop doing good because persistence pays off in the end at the age of seven this child's family was forced out of their home because of a legal technicality he started to work at age seven in order to support them at age nine, and still backward and shy, his mother died. At age 22, he lost his job as a store clerk. He wanted to attend law school, but was told his formal education was inadequate. At age 23, he went into debt to become a partner at a small store. Three years after that, his business partner died and left him a huge debt that took him years to repay. At age 28, a four-year romantic relationship was dissolved. An earlier love he had shared with a beautiful girl ended up in heartache at her unexpected death. He had political ambition, 
So he ran for Congress on two separate occasions, and he lost both elections. At age 37, though, on his third attempt, he was elected to Congress. Two years after that, he ran again, and once more, he lost the election. I should add that about this time, he had a nervous breakdown. At age 41, adding additional heartache to an unhappy marriage, his four-year-old son died. Altogether, he had four sons, but only one survived to adulthood. Then he was rejected for the position of land officer. At age 45, he ran for the Senate and lost. Two years after that, he was defeated in his bid to be nominated as the Vice President of the United States. At age 49, he ran for the Senate once more, and once more he lost. Add to that an endless barrage of criticism, misunderstanding, ugly and false rumors, and deep periods of clinical depression, then we can understand the reason his peers snubbed him and multitudes despised him. He wasn't at the envy of his time, but at age 51, Abraham Lincoln was elected the 16th president of these United States because he persisted. He wouldn't quit, and our nation should be grateful. It's not possible to succeed apart from persistence. And Nehemiah was persistent. The easiest thing for us to do sometimes when opposition comes is to quit. Just quit. Hang it all up. To throw in the towel. To bail out. To forget it all. And go on and do something else. The secret to Nehemiah's success was his ongoing commitment to continue to rebuild Jerusalem regardless of hostile criticism, and regardless of actual physical opposition, forceful opposition, I might add. I believe in success, and I believe the scriptures teach personal success. Joshua 1 and verse 8 and Psalm 1 are both examples of that. But God has not called us to be successful per se. God has called us to be faithful, persistent, faithful, to continue to do what God expects from us, no matter what. Remember this, tough times don't last, but tough people do. Tough times don't last, but tough people do. It's not that I have never practiced persistence, because I have. I have persisted numbers of times. I persisted as an older adult and completed a master's degree. We started another church in the middle of that program. So it was stretched out over 84 months. But I persisted, and I managed to finish. I have persisted, but I've also quit some things. I've thrown in the towel on some things. I've bailed out of some things that I should have, and now I wish have, I had continued. My persistence hasn't been as consistent as it should have been. I should be as committed to persistence as this man from South Korea I read about, that at age 70, 70, he just passed his driver's license exam. Now get this, he passed on his 271st attempt. He's illiterate, 
So he took the oral examination, but apparently that wasn't all that helpful. The first 270 times, he wasn't able to score high enough to pass, but he was persistent. It cost him more than $1,000 in test fees, but he wouldn't quit. He was determined to drive. He was persistent. If we intend to do something that has significance, no matter what that might be, as Nehemiah did, then there's going to be criticism. Criticism is inevitable. I contend, I contend that we should listen to and we should evaluate all criticism. We shouldn't reject any criticism until we have evaluated it. We should evaluate all criticism to determine the nature of that criticism. And then after evaluating the criticism and determining the nature and intent of that criticism, we should reject, categorically reject, harmful and destructive criticism, and we should consider the criticism that is more constructive. The reason we should consider all criticism, resist the urge to be defensive, and listen carefully, evaluate it, is because constructive criticism can sometimes come from some unusual sources. In Numbers 22, the prophet Balaam was on his donkey, and Balaam's donkey spoke to him and was critical of his actions. The older edition of the King James translation uses another word instead of donkey, but we will use the word donkey, although I like the other word. Um, <laughs> Now, donkeys don't actually talk, except in the animated movie series called Shrek. Uh, and that's actually Eddie Murphy, that's the character he's talking. God spoke his words through Balaam's donkey's mouth in order to get a message to Balaam. The moral of that is, God can still use human donkey types, if you get my drift, to get his message to us. That is profound, I might add. <laughs> so it is wise to consider all criticism. If we receive what we have perceived to be harmful criticism, criticism from a wrong motive, criticism to call us some sense of harm or shame, then sometimes we must, we must defend ourselves against that criticism. If we have been slandered, and it's sometimes we have to stand up and set the record straight and say, no, this isn't true. But most often it is better to ignore that criticism and pray for those critics to be forgiven and then continue to do what God has called us to do. We should mimic Nehemiah, pray and persist. Let me mention in conclusion five practical things to remember that can help us become more persistent. One, there aren't many quick fixes. Remember, anything of a significant nature requires time. Christianity isn't a sprint. Christianity is a marathon. That means persistence is fundamental to the long haul. Second, there aren't many free lunches. Salvation is a free no strings attached gift from God. But after salvation, personal sanctification, and sanctification is a theological word, 
personal, practical sanctification requires effort on our part. Personal, practical sanctification is that practical progression that happens in a gradual sense on a daily basis that conforms us to more and more resemble Jesus. And persistence has to be a part of that effort. Persistence is difficult, but it has to be there. Because no one is just going to hand us success, including God. Third, there aren't many permanent solutions. Meaning most solutions are temporary. Finding a solution to one problem doesn't mean there aren't more problems. The moment after one problem is solved, there's another problem that needs a solution, and then another problem that needs a solution, and on and on. The more successful someone becomes, the more complicated life gets. Schedules get tighter, financial needs increase, and there are more and more relational people issues to address. Problems increase, and there aren't many permanent solutions. So if we're going to survive, then we have to be persistent through problem after problem after problem. Fourth, there aren't many forever friends. On the average, those friends that are committed friends, committed to us no matter what, those friends can be counted on one hand. One hand. Second Timothy 4.16, Paul made the statement, At my first defense, no one, no one stood with me, but all, all forsook me. It would seem that at that particular moment in time, Paul didn't even have one, not one committed friend, not one forever friend. All his friends had abandoned him. And so we had to stand alone. And standing alone requires incredible persistence. Fifth, there aren't many repeat performances. Just because someone has succeeded before doesn't mean that person will automatically repeat that same success. So persistence is needed to succeed a subsequent time. I remember sitting at a pastor seminar hearing someone ask John MacArthur that since he had experienced such success at Grace Church, if he had thought about pastoring somewhere else, in another state, another region, his response was, I haven't thought about that because I'm not so sure that I could duplicate somewhere else what I have been able to do here. And I've pastored seven congregations in four different states and I couldn't agree more. This church, this congregation is not a repeat performance of any congregation I have pastored before this one. In a numerical sense, this this congregation is substantially less than what I am accustomed to. This is not a repeat performance, but that's okay. There aren't many repeat performances. There are some, but not many. President Theodore Roosevelt made a statement we have all probably heard, but it bears repeating. The former president said this, it is not the critic. It is not the critic who counts. 
Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of, deed, doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit, instead, belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is mired by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly but who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But the one who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms and the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory or defeat. Far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory or defeat. Listen to these words from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Let us run with endurance. Endurance is persistence. Let us run with persistence the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Endured the cross. Jesus persisted for us. He didn't quit. He didn't give up. He didn't stop short. And the least we can do is be persistent for Him. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank You for this lesson from Nehemiah on how to react to critics and criticism. It is a territorial problem anytime anyone attempts to do something of significance. So help us to prepare ourselves for that. And to do as Nehemiah did, to pray and persist. And God, I know that there are people in this room who, if they evaluated themselves, would probably be one of those poor spirits Mr. Roosevelt mentioned who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory or defeat. And if there's anyone in this room like that, and I have been there sometimes, God help them to repent and to determine to make their life count. Life is short. We don't have time to waste it. We need to use it to benefit you and to benefit the people around us. Lord, help us determined to make a difference. And I thank you and praise you in the name of your mighty Son that we love so much, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.